Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton, and with my good friend Jack Rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Munn. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is closetalking.com. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we greet you on a Friday in December of 2020, the longest year of our collective lifetimes, which is why we have a relatively short poem that has nothing to do with anything that happened this year, except for the ways that it does. Yes, Um, for sure. Like, remember how the year began with massive wildfires in Australia? Oh my god, actually, barely. But that was horrible. I think two to three billion animals died. Stop it. Yeah. Oh my god. They stopped counting. I actually was recently doing some reading about it, like, for something else. And, like... It reached 1 billion at some point in the reporting, and then they were like, a billion animals have died. And then people stopped counting, and then I found like another article like a few months later that was like, it's now like at least 2 billion, which is catastrophically horrifying. Wow. Jeez. Well, the poem we're talking about today is not directly related to any specific events that were going on this year. But it is an incredibly good poem, and it raises some really interesting issues, sort of about the project of poetry itself. So it's it's an interesting uh, diversion into that realm. And it does contemplate nature, which is always all around us, even in small ways when we're in urban areas, and in bigger ways when we're out in nature itself. Um, but it's engaged with the, the project of like being an aware person in the world, and so that's always good to reflect upon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the poem is called The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas, who is one of the esteemed white men of American letters. Um, (laughs) One of the preeminent white men of American letters. He is a wonderful poet. And actually, we've never done a Haas poem except for his translations of haiku um, during our poetry week on haiku. Um, he's, he's one of the more well-known translators of, well, at least Basho and Issa. And 
yeah, he he's really wonderful. He's been writing for a long time. And this poem, I think, was published actually in The New Yorker first in 2005 and then came out in his book, Time and Materials, came out in 07, I think. Yes, and which won him a joint Pulitzer Prize in 2008 and the National Book Award in 2007. So pretty good book for it to be in. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, it's not the trifecta. Didn't include the National Book Critics Circle Award as our good friend John Ashbery pulled off way back when in the 70s, maybe. But, it's sort uh, of like how Rod Laver completed the Grand Slam and like won all four tournaments in the year twice, or how Steffi Graf completed the Golden Slam, winning all four Grand Slams and also <laughs> the Olympics in the same year. And like Serena did the Serena Slam, where she won four in a row, but it wasn't like a calendar year Grand Slam. And we do care about time in that way. So <laughs> definitely less good, Serena. Sorry. It makes a certain amount of sense that we've talked about Haas through his translations because that's sort of like his avenue into poetry was like Ginsberg and Snyder and a lot of other poets who were deeply influenced by writers like Basho and Issa um, and who were really bringing that uh, poetic tradition into their own, you know, beat works or proto-beat works. Um, so the, the tradition that he falls into definitely reflects exactly what his poetic output has been both the, what he has written himself and the other works that he chooses to you know bring into the english language for for other english-speaking readers from other poetic traditions absolutely well, let's read it let's jump right in let's do it let's find out what this problem with all these uh tree descriptions is seems to be there are many problems but i think he might just talk about one Mm, I think there might be two. This is going to be oh. a fun episode. Uh-oh. Counting. Never good for poets. This <laughs> I is... actually did a lot of counting for this episode. <laughs> I, I did quite a bit of counting. You're, you're going to be shocked. I'm, I'm notoriously terrible at counting. Um, no big deal. On the side, as a paralegal, one of my jobs was to check the annual disclosure document of the MTA for like math errors and stuff. So I probably shouldn't admit to either that or my uh, problems with counting on air. But... Uh, Less close talking be held for liability from the New York Metro Transit Authority. Hopefully the statute of limitations is rapidly approaching for that one. Yeah, I think I got away with uh, without making any errors. Okay. Whew. Let's get to trees. Let's do it. The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas. The aspen glitters in the wind and that delights us. The leaf flutters, turning, because that motion in the heat of summer protects its cells from drying out. Likewise, the leaf of the cottonwood. The gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree danced. No. The tree capitalized. No. There are limits to saying in language what the tree did. It is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. Dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. Aspen's doing something in the wind. It's 
such a cool poem. I have a yeah. very quick question before we get into a like quasi narrative breakdown. Sure. The first time that you read it, uh -huh. did you get annoyed when it became a poem about poetry? Or like when poetry was explicitly brought up? Because I feel like I sometimes have a knee-jerk reaction to things like this. Like when ACDC has another song about rocking and it's a <laughs> song about how they want to rock, I'm like, guys, just do it and don't talk about how you're doing it. <laughs> like for once, can you please? Well, I'm not probably the at, like the right person to ask this question because I was afraid of that. Um, I love when poems talk about their poemness, and it's something that I get quite a great deal of delight from. Our little term that is it should be, yeah. I want to come up with a less weird sounding word, but. Self-reflexivity is the, is the termy term, but it's really just like looking at your own reflection and commenting about it, you know, and reflexivity is got, I don't know. When you get the X's and the V's and the Y's, you're just like, it's like you take something and then you're just getting like a smudge eraser and you're kind of just blurring it, you know? Intersubjectivity, verisimilitude, I'm with you. Yeah. It's a real phenomenon. Yeah, I ended up loving it, but I did, the first time I read through this, as I was reading through it, go like, uh-oh. Because <laughs> I don't necessarily <laughs> mind it when that happens in poems, but something about how this poem began, and we'll probably get into this as we discuss it, I was ready to go somewhere with this poem, and then I felt like it stopped me and was like, actually, I'd like to talk about where we're going first. Um, and we, we might be going somewhere you're not expecting. And so I did end up loving that, but the moment that it veered, I caught myself as a reader thinking, uh, <laughs> Robert, Robert, <laughs> don't mess with me, Robert, don't play with my heart. Um, but then it ended up being really cool. Um, yeah. So we'll get into all that though, but yeah, let's, let's do our, our brief little narrative breakdown as we tend to do at the beginning. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I will say that when it's done poorly, the kind of self-aware stuff can, it can come off as very clever, like, I know I'm so clever kind of thing, and like, I know what I'm doing kind of thing. So it is, it's a thing that happens often enough that you're like, oh, you know, it's happening again. Um, and so you, you don't know if it's going to be in a good way or a bad way. Well, I think you're just setting yourself up a really challenging task as a writer when you do it. And I liken yeah. it, I don't know, what is the, there's a termy term for when poems are laid out in a certain way, like when they're laid out in the shape of something. Oh, concrete. Concrete, that's it. Yes. Because it's not as termy a term as I keep thinking it is. Uh, <laughs> But like, no, <laughs> a concrete poem about a window shaped like a window is automatically very likely to be less interesting. But a concrete poem shaped like a window that's about Alzheimer's disease, that could be having an interesting conversation between like, why is it shaped that way? And what is the content of the poem? I feel like that's the difference for me of when calling out a poem's poemness in the poem works well and doesn't. You're like, 
you could just be doing something really literal that ends up detracting from your subject that you're talking about in the poem and then you also want to talk about the poemness of your talking about it or you could be mobilizing that other conversation to further what you're talking about which is what this poem does so well yeah no i think that's exactly right i think that's exactly right um yeah so yeah get into the the narrative um yeah it's pretty simple in some ways um the problem of describing trees there's an aspen tree it's glittering the leaf are moving around um and then the speaker's kind of like talking about you know maybe like scientific or evolutionary reasons for why it's moving then the you know then there's the gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree dance no the tree capitalized no there are limits to saying in language what the tree did so there's this kind of like the speakers trying to describe the tree in a different way and then is like trying again and again and again and, and is not satisfied. And it's kind of like, you know, you can only say so much. And then the last three lines are kind of all different in a way and they're all separate stanzas. Um, it is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. And then, and then it's this italics moment, dance with me dancer, oh I will, which, kind of refers back to the tree dancing, but it's a little unclear, you know, where it's exactly it's coming to. But then the poem ends with basically a restatement of the beginning of the poem, but in like a vaguer way. So like Aspen's doing something in the wind. It's like the Aspen glitters in the wind. Yeah, and you know, that's basically terms of what happens. And you're that's left in a position where you're kind of knowing or saying less than you did when you start because the beginning is this much more descriptive the aspen is glittering and it delights us like that's a lot of visual and emotional information and it ends in this totally desaturated decentered de-descriptivized aspen's doing something in the wind like ah <clears throat> exactly no no that's really right it's it's yeah like one of the the poem's obviously doing like a number of different things, but one of the like key things as you're talking about is like, and it's, it's all laid out in the title, the problem of describing trees. It's like, so, you know, like delight is kind of one of the initial concerns of the poem that like both nature and observing nature has this, is, has this beauty that can glitter, cause us pleasure. And then all at the same time, also like, poems are sources of pleasure and delight too and yet there's and there's kind of like and in those two things the thing itself and then talking about the thing or describing the thing are like in tension with each other and kind of like by the end you know the aspens doing something in the wind like ruin i mean it's not entirely ruined but they they kind of <laughs> they like cancel each other out in some kind of way where it's like you get the sense that the speaker appreciates the Aspens less or at least in a less delightful way. Maybe he's learned something else. And then also the poem itself has, has become less of poetic-y um, or something, you know, it's not specific. Yeah, you're right, because by the time you get to that last line on the poetic front, it's doing everything wrong. 
from like a what you would learn to do to write good poetry if anybody was teaching you they would use this line as an example of what not to do this line doesn't belong in your poem because it's not doing anything for the reader on its own it does a lot here because of how it's constructed but like the fact that it gets to that point in this poem is so telling yeah no i think that's that's really right you know because because it's interesting because like at least like in terms of my own reader response like when i get to that last line i do have something of a that kind of like something felt profound a little bit or like felt like it moved me in some kind of way not necessarily like oh that's so beautiful or something but like but by itself, obviously, like Aspen's doing something in the wind has none of that. Um, and so it's, it's entirely how the poem, the way that the poem itself is, is contained in the last line and how it moves to get there from the glitters, you know, which already it's like more specific, but it's still, it's not like, it's not Haas's like finest line, you know what I mean? Which I think. Um, it's like, I mean, even that line, though it is much more descriptive, it is also the kind of line that you would just kind of find as a throwaway line in a poem that is not trying to be a great line. There's nothing particularly exciting about the sounds in it. The description is maybe not a cliche, but it's not far from one. It's not, you know, a really artful poetic opening to a poem. The way that, I mean, we've discussed a lot of poems that have really standout openings in a lot of different ways. They describe something that's striking to imagine. They do it in language that is really, that you've never heard before, that's engaging for some reason. But the, it, it is kind of a, a throwaway line. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it's, it's like one thing that I was thinking about. So there's, there's kind of two big stanzas where there's like attemp attempts to describe it differently. You know, like the leaf flutters turning because that motion in the heat of summer protects its cells from drying out. Um, and then the next one, the gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree danced. And then we get the nose basically. And both of those are kind of like, the way that I think about it sometimes is like, it's they're like, in the psychology of the speaker poet, it's like, okay, you know, I'm trying to get to the real description of the Aspen or like, what is it actually doing? You know, like it's not actually glittering. And so then it's like, okay, well maybe we turn to like science in a kind of way as like a proxy for truth or something. Like the leaf flutters turning because that motion in the heat of summer protects its cells from drying out. So that's like, the leaf isn't doing anything to delight us, right? It's like the, its motions are governed, you know, based on the evolutionary like laws or whatever. And, and then it's kind of like taken to another extreme in the next sentence, like the gene pool threw up a wobbly stem in the tree danced, um, which is almost like beyond literal comprehension, like it's a little unclear, but but it's sort of like the gene pool in like threw up a wobbly stem. It's like, I guess it's like, it, you know, it in terms of evolution, the way that evolution happens in my very rudimentary understanding is that you get these like 
basically chance uh, mutations or like errors in you know in the gene that that wasn't there before, and so the the new mutated organism is slightly different and that happens like a million times times a million over a huge like stretch of time and it just is like the each change happens by chance but then over time it's like the ones that survive better are the ones that are going to survive better and so those those pass their genes on and the ones that don't survive well just die out and so I guess the the kind of um, I guess the kind of literal description I'm sort of like coming to understanding this myself right now is like the gene pool was like, hey uh, tree, <laughs> your stems were super non wobbly for a long time, but this time I'm gonna throw up a little wobbly one, and then you're gonna it's you're gonna dance basically like your leaves are gonna be flowing everywhere in the wind and it's gonna look cool but that'll actually help you survive because summer's hot and you know um blah 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 um and so it's this interesting kind of combination of and you know like the kind of almost anti-beauty truth like of science causing the beautiful or whatever but then the speaker is like dissatisfied with that basically and it feels to me like the way that this poem moves into science and the way that it's constructed overall is very self-consciously kind of uh imitating the way a lot of poems might go about the subject like as a kind of poetic cliche or even as like a creative nonfiction cliche and even some longer form journalism you start with a little narrative piece at the beginning and then you dive into whatever contextual history you need like that's the structure of most new yorker articles there'll be a little opening paragraph and then the next one or two paragraphs is historical context uh, and then it goes back into the story that it's actually telling you about something going on in the present and it'll also do that if there's a scientific element at play and we've seen obviously there's a lot of poems that incorporate that kind of scientific either lens or language very artfully. We talked about medical history, we talked about nursing home, which literally incorporates like medicalese, if you wanna call it that. But the way that this is being brought up here feels very much to me like aspens are glittering in the wind. Perhaps it is because of the way that those leaves turn. And yes, I have researched why they do that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have researched why its stem was not straight like its brothers. You know, like, I feel like that's the, when you can sort of transparently see a poet writing, a lot of times it's when those kind of formulaic constructions are showing up in their work. Like, it, I, I feel like that's something that this poem is interested in replicating to a degree um, in its own way for its own purposes. But yeah, I definitely take that away from that segment of the poem as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It actually makes me think of, I'm gonna make a little pretentious reference. I'm not positive the exact article, but I think that at least one of them it's talked about in, uh, so it's uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who was a French philosopher, kind of a, in the post-structuralist something. And I think that he was also thinking about 
Walter Benjamin, who wrote about, there's the famous article by him of uh, something in the age of mechanical reproduction. The work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Yes. And I mean, we're all thinking about that one from time to time. I, it I just sort like of comes up. But Leotard, he was concerned about painting and photography. And what that made me think of is that when photography started to happen, it was capable of representing the real in a way that was far superior to, in terms of just technical ability than painting. And it was also much more efficient. And so the one can trace the sort of move of painting away from just sort of realism, sort of like into less and less realism, you know, from impressionism to like abstract expressionism to minimalism, as in part a response to the advent of photography and the kinds of the domain of representation needing to change for painting because realism like itself, whatever that may be, was like <laughs> basically usurped or something. And this makes me think of a little bit, it's a little different, but I think a lot about how science is both kind of itself, you know, just the scientific process of way of finding out about the world and at the same time is the kind of language of capital T truth. Whereas before, like there's a, in uh, Virginia Woolf's like a room of one of his own, she talks about how that, you know, uh, libraries and museums are like the new, of you know, the, the secular churches of the modern day or whatever. Um, and so that those have sort of like taken the place of religion as like the authorities on what is or whatever. Um, and so science like kind of has that role or has had that role in some extent. Anyway, it just struck me as like the, the, the poet in sort of kind of like having to demonstrate their authority over the subject that then they're trying to you know, be able to say something more about, right? That like, all right, I've got this apps, this Aspen tree, and like, I need you to believe that I'm actually seeing it and know about it and that it's a real thing. And then once you think it's real, then I can use it as my great image and revelation and metaphor for blah, blah, blah. That like, like at a certain point, it would be enough and still, it's not that it's not enough all the time to just describe the aspen tree in great detail, right? As a kind of painting of the tree, right? This sort of representational thing. But I think since the dominance of, of science as like an authoritative discourse, poets have sometimes, and to your point, like to a point sometimes of cliche perhaps, turned to using the language of science as like a way of also establishing authority over their subject so that then they can kind of do you know use it like because the reader's like oh shit 
This guy knows about the Aspen. And now I know about it. And now I know that it's real. And now I'm going to think about Aspens and whatever this metaphor is that uh, Robert Haas just threw down. And so in this poem, it's kind of like he sees himself going through those motions and it's like, eh, like, you know, there's, there's limits to, it's like, I, I tried just describing it. Eh, um, okay. I've tried to describe like the scientific bait, you know, evolutionary whatever's about the Aspen. Eh, like what else can I say about, you know, what other technologies are in language, you know, like if, like if science is kind of the photography of language in some sense or scientific discourse of like the precise depiction of reality, right? And if that is not enough right now, then what can I do? And so then we get to that line of, it is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us, where we kind of, we learn that the poem before that point is like trying to enchant us, like, ah, the aspen glitters in the wind, oh, do, do, do. But then maybe it's, maybe we need to be disenchanted sometimes. Like in the same way that painting is aware of its like inadequate ability to be the masters of realism anymore because of photography, you know, poems and poetry can also become aware of its limits. And that, so the, the reflexive self-aware part is, is useful for like engaging with that kind of problem, I guess. I think that's right on. And especially science is like a quasi penetrative way of looking at and categorizing the world. We've talked many times about the sort of human impulse to conquer or whatever. And there's like a baked in element of that in the way that science is practiced by necessity and by the very nature of what it is. It is human beings creating an order out of a disorderly world. That's what taxonomy is. That's like what a lot of the scientific project is. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I know I've just kind of couched it in some pretty negative language, <laughs> but like it's an effort to understand the world, but we are of course naturally limited by our own viewpoint. And I know Haas has talked about this poem a little bit and it's mostly um, talking about how like you can describe you seeing the tree, but you don't know anything about what it's like to be an Aspen tree. So you don't actually know what it's doing. And that disconnect and like my cat hangs out with me. I generally know when he's like happy or scared or hungry or whatever, but I don't have any inkling about what, if any internal thought processes are going on and what form they take. Cause like, I think in my head in English, it is hard enough for me to talk to like understand what the subjective experience of another human being who thinks in multiple languages is. And there are people all around the world who do. That's my own species. And I know some other languages. And like the closest I would come is that if I, I have a highly auditory memory. And so if I have been listening a lot to a particular voice, I will start to be able to think in that voice. Usually consciously, 
but sometimes not so consciously. <laughs> um, but like that's still so far removed and that's even within like human experience. And so trying to describe a tree, you're also trying to describe what that tree is going through maybe not necessarily from its point of view but like to accurately describe it you should know what it's doing and you can't actually know what it's doing from the viewpoint of not being able to know what trees do because they're trees and you're a human <laughs> <laughs> and so that gets you to a point of like aspen's doing something in the wind <laughs> they're doing aspen stuff and i i mean i'm i fully dig it i'm so into aspen stuff but I don't know what it is. I know what I think it is. I think it's dancing. I think it's all sorts of other people things. But those are people things. That Aspen is not dancing because it's an Aspen and it doesn't do that. Or maybe it does, but I don't know if it does or not. <laughs> um, and so there's like, there's that level, which I know is one that I think Haas himself has talked about. But I also sort of take it as exactly what you were saying, a poem that is examining the limits of poetry to say something <laughs> um not just language but like poetry as a form and is deeply interested in poetry as a form of language and expression and for me i sort of as i was saying i read back from the point where the poem turns the ways that the beginning of the poem is like setting up cliche adjacent poetry constructions that you can see once it tells you that it's a poem that's not just about trees but also about poetry because you get in a very short poem almost all of it's about trees only and then you have a line that says it is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us which is your big red flag signpost of like wait a minute we're also <laughs> worried about poetry and language hold up <laughs> like you thought this was a tree thing and it's not and then you get two lines that are in theory then explicitly addressing that tension. And it's those two lines. The last three are all their own stanzas, as you mentioned. And those last two, the first one italicized dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will, which I would like to get into. <laughs> I have questions. And then the last one, Aspen's doing something in the wind, but that italicized line feels to me like there's a lot of readings in it. Um, is it the speaker inviting the tree and then the tree responding in some way? Is that line, if that is the case, what is it trying to do in the poem? Is it trying to go beyond description and saying and turning, like describing the dance of viewer and object and describing and experiencing? Is that the dance? Is that the invitation and negotiation? in describing it that way, does that then do a better job of describing this experience without ever mentioning aspens or wind or anything? Like, is that what's actually going on here? The one line that doesn't talk about either poetry or trees? <laughs> I feel like maybe it is. And then you get to that last line where like, no, the best way I could describe this is this italicized line about dancing. So actually it could be anything you're looking at. It could be anything I'm looking at you know, Aspen's doing something in the wind. It's actually about that dance between observer and observed and writer and object and experience and the way that it's filtered through the, the writer. And it is most accurately described 
when the writer becomes aware of all of that and just invites the object to be in conversation with them in some way. And here again, like he's, he would just be imagining Aspen agreement (laughs) (laughs) in some ways that line to me feels like where the real description happens. And it is in many ways, the most removed from anything that's we've been told is actually in any concrete fashion going on. Yeah, no, I think that's really right. Yeah, I it's it's an incredible line where it comes in. No, I, I, I agree. I think I think definitely one reading of it is 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 a kind of an offer or a you know uh to the to the tree, to the aspen. It's also, you know, probably also directed outward to the reader to some extent, you know, especially because we've we've brought up poetry so like we know we're in a poem and so when there's a poem there's a reader and so the reader is also engaged in the dance potentially and and i think it's it's you know it gets back to the fundamental challenge and problem but also delight of poetry which is that it's kind of describing stuff and then it's doing it's also doing something or is something right it's you know it's and and it's a dance in that way right so it's not like yeah it's it's that whole thing of like but what does it mean right it's like it's poems are not just a uh, a description or a representation of something they're they're an act or an event of or whatever um that has a kind of dynamic you know process but but at the same time it's so because it's only language and because it's so description based a lot of the time and that that images are one of its you know most common like devices it's having to like get out of the sort of like representation pigeonhole that it's like put in all the time or something, you know? The other thing that this reminded me of, um, which I was not planning on making two pretentious references, but here we are. Um, (laughs) It actually made me think of Yeats um that's not a pretentious reference that's just a connor reference that's just a connor reference that's to be expected at this point i think anyone who's listened to a few episodes of this podcast knows that connor has a yates uh yates thing yeah i got a yates situation um well i do and yates one of his more well-known poems um is called among school children and it's kind of a longish poem in eight parts that's like, but the parts are just stanzas and basically Yates himself is like going to a school and he's kind of an old man at this point. And he's like, or um, I think he self, he's like 60, says he's 60 in the poem or something. And he's kind of talking to the children and then it gets very like philosophical and um he's sort of like talking about plato and aristotle and like images and stuff and it's kind of like this 
mundane moment of a you know a famous <laughs> Irish old poet who's like visiting kids and is like wow but then at the end basically the last section which I'll I'll read which he says labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised pleasure soul nor beauty born out of its own despair nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil O oh, chestnut tree great rooted blossomer are you the leaf the blossom or the bowl O oh, body swayed to music O oh, brightening glance how can we know the dancer from the dance nice yeah which is pretty tight but a lot of a lot's been made of the kind of dancer and the dance kind of thing and that's why i initially thought of you know dance with me dancer oh i will um and kind of like the crude sort of meaning of that is like the image or the symbol for yeats of a poem is like this embodiment of like an idea um and it's it's kind of like we have this artificial split between the mind and the body but like the dancer who's like fully in the dance it's a synthesis of the body and the mind kind of thing um and so it's it's kind of like it's both the aspen and the word aspen or something you know it's like the language and the thing it's the idea and the reality um the symbol like has the possibility to bring that together um which i do think is like a lot of kind of what we talk about in uh in the podcast is like the poem making space for a feeling or an idea to be like experienced right which there's that felt quality to it and so it's hard to say if Haas is directly alluding to Yeats but I'm certain that he read Yeats at some point um, and I think like dance with me dancer oh I will it's this kind of moment of like in a way this is what's complicated about the poem in that at the same time that it's sort of like giving up on its ability to describe the tree it's also shedding the kind of like artificial qualities of the poem like it's like these like acts of description or like the scientific mode or whatever these are like kind of um you know flashy garments or tricks or whatever like by kind of bringing them up and tossing them aside even though the poem is kind of bringing us farther away from the tree perhaps it's like bringing us closer to like some place where the speaker is in some kind of way you know because it's like eh. and so then by the time we get to dance with me dancer oh i will that's like the moment where we're like really there kind of thing and it's like a gesture to be like let's be in it like we can we are the image 
like we are the Aspens, you know, and like, who knows what we're doing, but it doesn't really, like, that's why it's kind of also moving at the end with the doing something in the wind, because it's, it's like, it also doesn't quite matter what's being described at that point, right? It's like doing something, who cares? Like, it's just you and me, Aspen, and we're dancing, and like, I don't know what you're doing, but it's still a dance, and like, that kind of embodiment of like a relationship or like seems to be kind of like where the poem's trying to get um and kind of, I think where it gets by the end and yeah I think that like you know if it is an intentional illusion you know then it's also like it's bringing us into the reality of poems like the life of poems which is filled with poets talking with one another and so like there's a kind of the shared language among poets that like we're kind of stepping into with that kind of reference and even before the reference with the sort of hints at form that it takes earlier on exactly no exactly yeah and so yeah it's interesting like well you sent me this poem wow was it a week or two ago or something yeah and it, it was kind of in response to there was <laughs> a bit of a poetry kerfuffle on the on the social medias which we won't really get into but ocean vong who's an incredible poet who we've discussed on this podcast had kind of done this instagram explanation of metaphor and then it caused a bit of a an uproar over whether it was a good explanation or not on Twitter. And then there was kind of like another backlash of the backlash where, yeah, it just was, uh, it was a complicated situation, but it got us thinking about metaphor generally. It's like, it's kind of a bummer because it's like, there was a lot of good discussion that happened about metaphor as a result of the controversy, but the controversy was so gross and so sad, like unnecessary in a lot of ways, I think. Um, it ended up being fairly complex because there were so many layers to it and there were different levels of response. So someone might be responding to the original posts, even though the discourse at large had moved on to a third level of reaction to the reaction kind of situation, as many of these instagram to twitter <laughs> dust-ups tend to be it, it ended up yeah but it did spark a lot of really good conversation about metaphor um and really like poetry as a vehicle for saying something basically and like the ways in which you can attempt to say something yeah <laughs> yeah and that's sort of where this poem fit in for me because i came across it around the time all that was happening connor and i had been you know keeping an eye on the Twitter discourses as we do, you know, seeing what's <laughs> going on out there. And this poem, its project seems to be similar to that which was going on in the more constructive parts of that metaphor and simile discourse, which was like, how do you say stuff in poetry? Can you? And if so, <laughs> like, how? <laughs> yeah. And how do you, and how do you talk about poetry like what is the use of talking about poetry in a way like which yeah which is kind of like I don't know it, it caused a lot of thoughts 
for me. Um, but one that I, I don't know if this is, this is like a now I'm, <laughs> I'm like becoming self-reflexive about the podcast is a highlight embarrassing, but, um, I'm like, you know, we're close talking the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast, but you know, we, we break down poems in a matter of craft. And like, so there was a lot of sort of conversation about like, what is craft? How should people use craft? Who controls the conversations about craft, which I think was a lot of ultimately what was at the heart of it was that, you know, like Ocean Vong, like is a, you know, queer, like refugee from Vietnam. And like in many ways is his identity and his life and his poetry are not the typical white American stodgy uh, American canon, blah, blah, blah type thing. And so, um, which, and actually Robert Haas is in some ways firmly in line with the stodgy part of it, but at the same time, he's also, you know, he's, a, he's a, I think a fairly accessible poet in, in a, um, I mean that in a, I mean that word's been, but he's one of the more popular ones that, that reaches audience. It's not a, he's not a poet that only poets read, I suppose is what I mean to say. And I think that we, like there was one part of me that was like, oh, I really care about what like a metaphor is and what a simile is. And then I also was like, like I care about it. I don't know. We're, and then it's like, obviously close talking is not a, <laughs> you know, it's a labor of love and we have our listeners that we love and adore and hear from occasionally, um, you know, and we're not like, you know, gatekeepers in any sense at this point, although maybe at some point we'll, I mean, we can wish, um, but you know, we're also, you know, we are straight white guys. I did go to an MFA. I have the kind of like cultural keys to the castle with my MFA or whatever. And so, but part of the reason that I, and this is maybe too long or should be something else, but in some ways the mission of the podcast is to convey craft as a way of getting it outside the pearly gates of that as a way of also then getting poetry itself outside of its insular stuff. But then I had this kind of like competing impulse of, I guess would probably just be my own thoughts about what is what. And I was really glad when you sent me the poem because it, it just was like, Hey, it's just such a great poem. Um, that's, thinking about this stuff, but it, it also just, it got me thinking about like, you know, there's poetry and then there's all the talk about poetry and like, what is the role of that part of it? And like, when is that 
good to focus on and when should it be less so or something. And um, anyway, I, I felt like, yeah, th this poem was like doing both of those things, talking about poetry and being a poem at the same time. And so it was just, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Definitely. And I think the part of the sort of online conversation that really energized me and part of why I found this poem interesting. And it's a lot of what you're talking about is like, what is the place of craft and what is the use of it? And I think something that we often try to do on this podcast is contextualize, not just like craft, but also how is it most useful to deploy it? Because there are times when it is useful to look through the lens of craft. And there are times when that becomes an incredibly restrictive lens. And in fact, in the haiku series that we did, we talked a lot about the ways that the traditional hard, rigid rules around what is a haiku, 575, are not necessarily what makes a haiku. There are bigger things at play that can be more useful in looking at something and thinking, is this a haiku? The shortcut route is to say, well, it's 575, three lines. But that's not particularly useful or accurate. And you can get really hung up on those kinds of strict definitions but that doesn't necessarily help you in the long run. It can be very useful to know about, and it can be important context in terms of what is the tradition of the form you're looking at, but it's not the only thing that's useful when you're having a conversation about a poem or when you're trying to decide, is this a haiku or not? Yeah, there were, there were a lot of more useful pockets in what was by and large a frustrating dust <laughs> up. <laughs> as is often the case on the Twitters. But it got us to this poem. So I think overall, a lot of positives. True. Very true. Shall we read it again? I think we should read it again. This is The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas. The aspen glitters in the wind and that delights us. The leaf flutters turning because that motion in the heat of summer protects its cells from drying out. Likewise, the leaf of the cottonwood. The gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree danced. No, the tree capitalized. No, there are limits to saying in language what the tree did. It is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. Dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. Aspen's doing something in the wind. Aside from digging deep into Twitter discourse and thinking about Robert Haas, what you, what you been reading? What you been watching? Okay. Well, I'm a little late to the show, but this weekend I just watched with Sarita the entirety of Queen's Gambit, which was delightful. Um, I have not watched it yet, but oh, we were important information for listeners connor and i were both on the chess team in high school connor for a lot longer than i was yeah but also i was a lot worse and i was definitely the last board 
I was a eight. lot more intense during my short stint on the chess team, <laughs> but you were more involved with the chess team overall. I just don't want to misrepresent how on the chess team we were. I want to give you full credit for how many meets you went to before you finally convinced me to, to do chess. No, it was so funny. I'm glad you brought that up because I was watching it and they make chess look fucking cool and sexy and dramatic. And I was like, oh man, I love chess. And I was like, I should start playing chess again. And then I remembered being on the chess team and the chess <laughs> tournaments and just losing game after game and... There is a frustration in chess that I have not experienced anywhere else, which is you think so hard about something and make a choice and then you miss that one thing and then you're toast and there's nothing you can do. And then you realize the error of your ways and you just have to watch it just destroy you. <sighs> Yeah, the show, very fun, probably has some problems, super fun, very emotional, uh, high drama, chess is great. That's, you know, to be honest, that's where I've been at. It's Queen's Gamut. what I'm doing next weekend. Yep. It's only seven episodes. I know, but I just feel like I'm going to want to watch all of them, so I haven't even started. Yeah, that's sort of what happened, yep. <laughs> We we watched two on Saturday and probably five on Sunday. So nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jack. Uh, what are you? What have you been up to? What have you been reading, watching, listening to? Well, let me tell you <laughs> something that I'm also a little late to the party on. I guess in terms of my full appreciation, because I was like aware, but I was not aware. Um, like I'd heard it, but I hadn't. <laughs> heard it uh mm -hmm. is <laughs> the yep. pop masterpiece of 2020 dua lipa's future nostalgia every single song is incredible and i know maybe you're out there thinking like oh that's so mainstream like everybody knows about do it fine you know what have some boutique dua lipa and go watch her on the npr tiny desk concert that just got released whatever maybe that'll be good enough for you but in the meantime i'm gonna be over here levitating okay uh just an album of non-stop bop and a halfs like wow like here's the thing right people okay. so it's like it's a great mix of unabashed poppiness uh -huh. it's got a little dash of funk little dash of disco yeah and the way that Dua Lipa sings is a very sort of uh it's not like a classic pop or disco type of vocal she gives a very a more like emotive i don't know rock-ish folkish kind of vocal performance to my ear like it's still very very pop but i her voice has that quality to it um it's sort of like the difference between album and so it ends up being this great mix um where there's a lot of pop production but you really uh, it's very smart and careful production, so you actually hear all the separation in the instruments in a fun way, um, and like the yeah, it's just a great listening experience. It's it's fun for me on both just a dancing along to it level and also on a hmm, how'd they do that? I would like to replicate things in my own music from this. 
Uh, so yeah. It's <laughs> you want me? I want you, baby. My sugar boo. I'm levitating. The Milky Way.